the fact is that becoming a parent sort of creates this window of neuroplasticity that we see for men as well as women. So when people say that women are kind of instinctively wired to be parents and caregivers, I would push back on that and say the brain is highly plastic. It's shaped by experience. And it's not about whether you're biologically a woman, it's about whether you invest time in caring behavior. That's really what shapes your brain and biology and helps you to become a more effective caregiver over time. I think we have this sort of cultural problem where anything that women spend time doing gets devalued. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, housework, childcare, right? Those are just seen as like not as valuable as going to work at the hedge fund and right, making the big bucks. Um, but I think the more that actually men engage in those tasks, the more culturally we can start to value them. So I actually think that men stepping up at home is kind of the, the way to create huge culture change. is where I think the cultural values piece comes in. Like if we don't think housework, housework and childcare are important, if we don't teach our boys to play with dolls or if we don't encourage them to have experienced babysitting, like they're not gonna necessarily step up to the table when it's time to take care of their own families. Like we really have to emphasize that these are valuable activities that are important for society as a whole. This is Take the Day Off, a Mother Honestly podcast powered by Splendid Spoon. Women have always taken on the larger share of the domestic and caregiving responsibilities at home. Cooking, cleaning, laundry, childcare, sounds familiar? While these are absolutely important in keeping our households running smoothly and efficiently, we also know that women, as a result of the uneven, repetitive, and usually unrelenting household chores endure stress, anxiety, burnout, and depression. This podcast is about taking the day off from your personal or professional to-dos and bringing the focus back to you and on what matters most to your personal well-being, indulging in a creative pursuit, or simply getting some sleep. Weekly, we'll check in with you to learn more about what you're doing to take the day off, or simply some take the day off moments. In turn, we will harm you with the resources and know-how to take the day off, rejuvenate, and even better, unplug and get the rest that you deserve. We can only do this if we all do it. We must band together to show our young children and society at large that care matters. I am your host, Blessing Adeshino, founder and CEO of Mother Honestly, a chemical engineer, energy supply chain and operational excellence leader, and mother of four, you will also hear from my friend and co-host, Andrea Mullen, founder and CEO of Victory PR and mother of two boys. We are here to take the day off with Splendid Spoon. Welcome Dr. Dabi Saxby um, from the University of Southern California, which I'm super excited to introduce. Um, Dr. Zaxby is a friend of mine. We've done so many amazing things together, um, especially recently in LA at USC. Mm -hmm. And um, Dr. Dabi, I'm going to let you introduce yourself because I feel like you have a lot to you. You're a professor of psychology at the mm -hmm. USC John Seif 
um, and that's the Dana and David Dunsife College of Letters, Arts and Sciences. And you are also, um, you know, faculty at the Center of Changing Family. So mm-hmm. I'll just let you introduce yourself because I feel like I won't do it justice. So please, Dr. Saxby, please tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at USC. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm excited to see it. Looks like you've got your Christmas sweater on. I've got my like unable to quit as I am currently too legit shirt. So I feel like we both have the like the fun, the fun words on the shirt um, thing going. So yeah, so I'm a professor at the University of Southern California. I'm in the psychology department. I'm a clinical and health psychologist and I study close relationships, particularly family relationships. Uh, I also direct the USC Center for the Changing Family, which is an interdisciplinary hub for family studies research on the USC campus. So my work started out looking at cortisol levels, which is a stress hormone in couples in conjunction with their division of household labor. And that was some work that I did as a graduate student at UCLA. Since I set up my lab at USC, I'm focusing on the transition to parenthood. So I recruit couples that are expecting their first child. I bring them into the lab. I measure their hormones. I look at how they talk about uh, family issues together. So what, what their expectations are for the baby's arrival, for example. And then I follow them across the first year of new parenthood. So from pregnancy across that kind of perinatal period, we're looking at things like risk of postpartum depression, anxiety, difficult adjusting, difficulties adjusting to parenthood, parenting stress, and some health concerns. So I've been doing that study for the last seven or eight years. And I just, I'm very excited about this. I just got a new grant to follow up with the families now that their child is six and seven years old. So we're bringing the child and their parents back into the lab. So these are the parents that we met when they were pregnant. And we're now looking at the child's brain. So we do a neuroimaging scan. Um, In the original study, we scanned the fathers prenatally and then again, postpartum. Very interested in the men's caregiving brain and how parenting changes the brain of a man. Um, So we're scanning the dads again at seven years postpartum. We're also scanning the child and we're doing some father-child scanning protocols where we're looking at how dad and kid in the MRI scanners are reacting to the same kind of emotional content. Um, So we're sort of looking under the hood, under the skull and kind of in the body because we're looking at stress hormones as well to kind of see how the adjustment to parenthood carries into the first seven years of the child's life. So that's the big study I've been doing in my lab. We also launched, um, and this is relevant to your listeners, a um, COVID-19 specific study in spring 2020. Like so many people, we we had to sort of stop what we were doing, um, you know, with very little notice. We shut down our lab. We weren't able to bring couples in. We were still recruiting pregnant couples at that point. Obviously, we weren't going to, you know, expose pregnant couples to COVID risk by forcing them to visit our lab and, you know, do our protocols. So we decided to pivot to doing some remote and online research. We recruited a cohort of 760 expectant parents across the U.S. uh, and and started gathering data from them in spring 2020. And we're now um, doing a two-year follow-up with that sample. So, you know, similar longitudinal research, we're asking a lot of the same questions, um, but with a sample that specifically transitioned to parenthood during COVID-19. Wow, I I am just first of all blown away by this research um, that is you know 
ongoing and massive and wow, just the ability to sort of, you know, go back again seven years later and be able to, you know, sort of draw some, you know, correlations, right? Between the initial study and now, I think that's going to be really powerful. I want to just um, set, you know, come back to a, a point that you made about studying the, or scanning expectant fathers Italy, mm-hmm. and then again, six months postpartum. Because usually when it comes to, you know, childbirth and, and children and parenting, there's this, you know, especially within our community, right? Where mm-hmm. we're like, oh, women are wired to do this. What have you seen? Is this true? This is why you're here, Dr. Exactly. Tell us, is this true or not? Are women wired differently than men to care for children after, after childbirth? Yeah, this is exactly why I'm doing this research to kind of answer that question and figure out what is it that changes biologically when we become parents and are there things that look different from mothers versus fathers? So there's been evidence already that women's brains are changed when they become new mothers. So um, a group in Spain that I've done some collaboration with scanned women before they became pregnant and then again when they had three-month-old babies and found they actually lost volume in parts of the brain that are linked with social cognition and mentalizing and processing other people's minds. Um, And it sounds like, you know, you might think losing brain volume is a bad thing. The brain is shrinking and getting smaller. It actually looks like what was happening is they were becoming more streamlined and more efficient. So Mm -hmm. that it was an adaptive reorganization of the maternal brain. So one of our big questions was, would we see the same thing in fathers? And we actually teamed up with the group in Spain to combine our data and analyze it together. They had a small sample of data from men. And then we had our data that we've been collecting at USC. And we actually found reorganization and brain volume loss in the same parts of the brain that they had previously observed in mothers. So it looks like it's not so much about sex and gender, it's sort of more about caregiving experience that rewires the brain. And we see it in the fathering brain as well as in the mothering brain. There were some differences between fathers and mothers brain changes, but the fact is that becoming a parent sort of creates this window of neuroplasticity that we see for men as well as women. So when people say that women are kind of instinctively wired to be parents and caregivers, I would push back on that and say the brain is highly plastic. It's shaped by experience. And it's not about whether you're biologically a woman. It's about whether you invest time in caring behavior. That's really what shapes your brain and biology and helps you to become a more effective caregiver over time just like anything else we learn, right? Learning a language, learning an instrument, practice makes perfect and you have to be motivated um, to develop those skills of caring for a small infant. I I agree with you completely. Um, I remember when we had my, my, you know, with all of my three kids, well, I have four now, but the last three came in the last five years. And, you know, my husband would, he's always the, we call him the germaphobe. So he is like, when COVID came, my, we had friends calling us saying, blessing, you have to do nothing because guess what? You've been living this life before COVID, right? So my husband is the one who sanitizes every surface. And, you know, when, when, the, when the babies came along, it was literally like it kicked it up another gear, right? Is 
you know, making sure everything is washed properly, sanitized properly. The diapers are changed with clean hands. So, you know, so we don't pass germs. And I'm just like, you know, I just had a baby. I'm going to go relax. I'm going to go try to get some sleep. And he literally, you know, just jumped in into this, you know, really intense mode. And so, you know, I agree with you that it has to do with, you know, really doing the work, right? Mm-hmm. And motivated to do the work. And and so maybe when we see some men, because I have to, I have, we have to at least, you know, agree that a lot of men are stepping up. And I think that we've seen that men mm-hmm. are starting to sort of, you know, understand that care is not a woman's issue. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, they are literally leaving their humanity, you know, on the table by not partaking in this, yeah. you know, amazing, you know, life changing moments with their loved ones. So, whoa, lots of um, great stuff there. I don't know what yeah, Andrea yeah. thinks. Well, well, and I, I would pick up on that and say, you know, while you and I are having this conversation, my husband is packing for our trip tomorrow. So, you know, similar, I'm really lucky to have a husband who's kind of willing to put in the time and energy to keep the household running. Um, you know, I'm I'm on campus at USC and he works from home. So we actually have a really good balance where he picks up the slack. And I couldn't do this research if I didn't have somebody who was cooking, you know, helping with dishes and laundry, right? All of the things that go into managing a household with kids. So it really is, I think, for women to kind of advance in their careers, you have to see that willingness on the part of men to take these roles that are often stigmatized and sort of seen as as feminine. And I think we have this sort of cultural problem where anything that women spend time doing gets devalued. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, housework, childcare, right? Those are just seen as like not as valuable as going to work at the hedge fund and right, making the big bucks. Um, but I think the more that actually men engage in those tasks, the more culturally we can start to value them. So I actually think that men stepping up at home is kind of the the way to create huge culture change. Because if men are visibly in those caregiving roles and are starting to sort of see those neurobiological transformations that we expect to see when they're really putting in the time and sort of growing that part of their brains, Mm -hmm. then I think we as a culture can shift to see how important those roles truly are. But it's household by household transformation. Absolutely. We just launched um, the Modern Workplace Report um, with Care.com. And one of the biggest findings, in my opinion, um, is how much men are now doing more housework and childcare remote work, right? Mm -hmm. Because the flexibility now means that, you know, they, when they step out of their own office, they can now, you know, put the dishes in the dishwasher, you know, grab laundry. And mm-hmm. so we're starting to see more and more men um, spend more time on household chores and housekeeping and childcare and all those different caregiving responsibilities at home. And, you know, I almost argue, right, that if we can get more, if more and more men can continue to do this, then we are literally, right, going to be able to close the gender equity gap mm-hmm. faster than we actually thought. Because again, like you said, it's all about what is valued. And right. so as right. soon as we start to value this housework and this childcare, then we can get more, um, you know, more men, right, to do mm-hmm. that. 
And mm-hmm. what we've also seen is that women are actually, you know, um, the, the playing field has been leveled as a result, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Now, mom has more time to focus on her career. She has more time to ask for that raise. She has more time to advance in the workplace. And so, you know, it, again, a lot of these things is actually supporting all the, um, you know, indicators, right, that we want to see grow, which is, right. you know, more and more women um, advancing in the workplace. They're always gluten-free, dairy-free, and completely powered by plants with over 65 options and flexible plants you can change, pause, skip, or cancel at any time. Splendid Spoon is a great partner to me, helping take the load off of food prep and allowing me to enjoy the simple moments that can mean so much. Splendid Spoon has my back when time is just not on my side. Try Splendid Spoon today by visiting SplendidSpoon.com and enter promo code HONESTLY, H-O-N-E-S-T-L-Y, to receive $50 off your first box. Uh, I'm... Andrea, what, what, what are your thoughts on, on all of this? Um, so I agree that it is, there's just so much, you know, and there are so many implications of what you have just shared with us that can go take us in so many different directions and obviously very beautifully tie back to some of the most, you know, like the buzziest topics of interest, rightfully so, that are, you know, capturing headlines today. Mike, as I was researching you, um, for the podcast, something that struck me is the, uh, first of all, the connection between the um, increased cortisol levels with increased relationship distress, which mm-hmm. you know, I think means that the more stress a couple is under, the worse that is for their relationship. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be, you know, that's like, you know, yes, obviously that's going to be the case, but it's so, it's, I think it's so significant because right now there is a period of we're in this like flux where there are conversations surrounding just how challenging it has been to be a working mom and the reasons societally that that is. Um, but there's also this movement as Blessing described where we do realize that there are men and you know partners in the relationship who do want to participate, but it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a stressful time because it's a period of change. Um, so, and I think that that could be mirrored, you know, one of the revelations that my husband and I had that we talk about quite frequently when we first became parents was that, you know, throughout the duration of our relationship, one of us was going through something that was challenging. The other one was there to really help that person out of it. And when we had kids, that was no longer the case. We were both going through it and neither of us could help ourselves or each other. So I wonder what, number one, I'd love to know what personally prompted you to do this research mm-hmm. um, and devote all of your time and resources to it. Cause I think it's so heartening that it's even being done and invested. Mm-hmm. And number two, what do you hope that these, you know, the, the certainty of these results helps to usher in? Yeah. So I think you're exactly right. The, the, transition to parenthood kind of blows up a marriage or a couple's relationships. So there's well-documented evidence in the research literature that relationship satisfaction typically declines after the birth of a child. And I think that's interesting because you might think about, you know, welcoming a new baby is such a wonderful experience for a couple that could bring them closer together. And you hear about, you know, people want to have a baby to save their marriage. Um, In fact, because of just what you described, 
you often see plummeting satisfaction. And I think that's because people are just, you know, I like to think about it as like, you know, you, you're taking on a new part-time job, actually, you know, having a baby is a full-time job. You go from kind of enjoying each other to suddenly like you're running a small business, right? Where everybody's got to be around the clock kind of tending to that new baby. And it's just a huge new source of stress. There's a lot of learning that's happening. And like you said, both partners are kind of dealing with the sleep deprivation and the additional workload at the same time um, and may have divergent ideas of what good baby care looks like, which can, you know, then be a new source of relationship conflict, right? It brings up all those kind of family of origin issues that might have been kind of buried before the baby came around, like how do we get along with extended family? How do we celebrate holidays? Like there's a lot that, that can sort of get awoken um, when we become new parents. So I got interested in this work. Um, I'm kind of a child of the 80s. My, um, my mom, uh, you know, was, was very career minded. So it was kind of the like Mr. Mom, working mother era, like women in power suits. So she um, worked full time, um, you know, sort of throughout my childhood. And, um, you know, my parents got divorced in part, I think, because they could not really figure out the right division of labor. Uh, my mom was frustrated that she would come home from a long day of work and have to then make dinner and do the bulk of the childcare, while my dad was kind of off pursuing his various hobbies, right? Like very, very 1980s relationship dynamics. Um, the ironic thing is once they split up, um, we ended up, my two brothers and I had joint custody. So we spent one week every, every other week we spent with our dad. And he actually became the primary cook caregiver, housekeeper, right? Like we were living with a single dad um, half the time. And um, and he really stepped up. Like he would sew the labels on our clothes. He'd patch up our jeans. Like, so I actually got to sort of grow up with this like caregiver father figure. Um, and so when I was kind of thinking about what I wanted to study in graduate school, I was really interested in this idea of work-life balance, um, you know, sort of couple relationship dynamics in part because of my own experience as a kid, but also because of my own you know, questions about when am I going to have kids and how am I going to figure this out? I was really curious to understand, like, how do couples navigate these things? Um, and that's how I got involved in the cortisol and stress work that I did in grad school. And then that has kind of carried me through to the work that I'm doing in my lab. And I ended up really zeroing in on the transition to parenthood because I think it's that inflection point where a lot of things kind of change and get realigned, where a couple has to kind of redefine their roles. So it seems like, and I'm a clinical psychologist, so I'm always thinking about how do we intervene? Um, you know, what can we do to prevent problems or to um, yeah. fix problems? And so the transition to parenthood feels like if you really want to improve child welfare and couple well-being, that's a great time to zero in and think about preventive interventions that can address mood disorders and, um, you know, difficulties with parenting. That's so interesting. And I, um, I, were you aware as a child that that was the case, that your parents' marriage didn't um, last because of the division of labor? Were you aware? Really? That's very interesting. Yeah. I mean, that was something that my mom kind of told me as, as part of an explanation. I was nine when they split up and she sort of said, like, I feel like, you know, yep. your dad kind of left me alone to deal with all the household stuff and wasn't really there to be helpful and supportive. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah. And then I, of course- I have heard from- I admire her. Yeah. Women, um, I've heard from multiple women that said, you know, 
the only way they got their partner to do more was getting a divorce. And, um, and that was just what, like, you know, mind blowing to me. Um, but I see it clearly, right? Because yeah. if, you know, if you can't get somebody's attention to, you know, support yeah. their family and the, you know, people, they quote unquote love. And the only way to do that is for you to sort of, you know, force this division of labor, right? Because that's what divorce does is everybody sort of gets their own custody and you have to take care of your kid. And, um, you know, it's a very sad thing, um, but mm -hmm. it worked, yeah. it worked for, for a lot of the women. And yeah. I wonder, um, Dr. Zaxby, from your um, work, how have you seen, you know, men that contribute equally or at least to a large extent at home? What is different about their brain versus men that don't? Or is that something we've not dived into yet? That's such a great question that I think would require so much more research than, you know, than I've been able to do, although I'd love to sort of get at that question um, as I continue to do this research. But I think, you know, you hit the nail on the head with a really important point, which is women initiate the majority of divorces, right? So we think about, there's sort of the bridezilla stereotype of like women are desperate to get married. Everybody wants their dream wedding that they've been thinking about since they were a little kid. Um, in fact, there's pretty solid evidence that marriage is more beneficial to men's health and mortality risk than it is to women's. Like single women are actually um, happier and live longer in some cases than unhappily married women. Um, whereas for men, there's sort of this overall marriage benefit that married men just live longer than single men do. Um, so, you know, there's sort of an unequal exchange kind of at the, at the root of marriage um, for many women. And, and a lot of women vote with their feet, right? And just say like, this isn't really sustainable and, and I can sort of do this on my own a little bit better than I'm doing if um, I have a partner who's not really stepping up. I think what makes the men different who are willing to step up is, you know, probably like sort of like greater, um, they're, they're just better, <laughs> I don't know. No, I don't know. Um, I think like, I don't know what's, what's going on under, you know, under the skull, mm -hmm. but I think um, it probably has a lot to do with cultural conditioning yeah. it has to do with values. It has to do with what they saw in their own families growing up. Right. Although certainly men can overcome a lot of cultural stereotypes and stigma to become really active caregivers. And this is where I think the cultural values piece comes in. Like if we don't think housework, housework and childcare are important, if we don't teach our boys to play with dolls or if we don't encourage them to have experienced babysitting, like they're not gonna necessarily step up to the table when it's time to take care of their own families. Like we really have to emphasize that these are valuable activities that are important for society as a whole. And, you know, I, I talk about this a lot, like we have so many initiatives geared around getting women interested in science and research careers like blessing i know you're a chemical engineer right like um you know there's so much sort of stem oriented stuff that we sort of push on women and girls um in fact like women are less underrepresented in the sciences than men are underrepresented in what we call heed careers which is early education domestic um, so there are fewer male preschool teachers than there are female engineers, for example. 
Um, But we don't see that as a societal crisis in the same way that we need to invest. You know, we put millions of dollars like NIH and, and the National Institutes of Health and National Science Foundation have invested millions of dollars into getting women interested in science careers. Um, there's been no investment in getting men interested in working at daycares, right? Um, and it feels counterintuitive even to think about that. But we have these yeah. huge shortages of daycare workers um, that are actually really problematic for our society. Yeah. And again, I think it goes back to that question of what do we value? What do we prioritize? Well, wow. the cynic in me, of course, as you say that, I'm like, well, they'd have to pay them more money. Yes. You know, number one. That's part of it. <laughs> yeah. It's totally, it's a great point that you make. And it's one that I have not thought of in that sense. And I was going to ask in those, you know, exact, in that exact framework. Um, and I was going to ask what, you know, I'm the mother of two sons and I have, uh, you know, I've been open um, just now about some of the ch- experience that I had when I became a mother and the conflict that, you know, the tension that existed with my husband and I, because, and you mentioned, you, you nailed it on the head when you said the expectations that you'd have for caregiving, which were not things that we talked about prior to having mm-hmm. children. Um, that would have been very helpful, I think. But, um, you know, we've worried, we've able to work it out. Now we have these, our two sons are seven and 10. They're wonderful, but we are mindful of, you know, making sure that we raise them in a way that helps to, helps them to not have the same challenges that we've had as new parents. Um, And one of those things I do think would have to be, should be taking a more thoughtful approach to how we share with them the struggles. Like, you know, you talked about what your mom, how your mom was open with you about how Mm -hmm. the marriage did not work for her and why it was best to leave. And I wonder if there is a um, way to make sure that we're helping our children see things in, in a more healthy and equitable way. Definitely. So I think the way that we raise our kids is hugely going to shape the experiences of couples and families in the next generation. Um, it actually worries me a lot that the birth rate has been declining precipitously mm-hmm. in yeah. a lot of the industrialized world. And and I worry that people see having kids as so daunting and yeah. so expensive that they don't want to do it. And when you said like part of the secret of getting men into early childcare is we'd have to pay people more, right? I also think, you know, that again goes back to the question of sort of cultural value. And if we don't see having little kids as valuable, then people aren't going to want to do it. Um, and, it, you know, they don't necessarily see it as sort of like a huge societal contribution, um, you know, to our sort of public welfare. And and there's sort of this thing of like, you know, and I said this earlier, like what whatever jobs men do, we tend to value more, right? Like computer sure. science was a profession that was totally dominated by women um, in the 40s, 50s, even in the 60s. Um, it really wasn't until the 60s and 70s that men started majoring in computer science and kind of moving into um, computer science careers. All of a sudden, computer science is this really prestigious Um, very well-paid occupation, like especially in the 80s. And there were all these like, you know, computer coding kits that people would buy for their boys, right? You could get like a, um, you know, you could learn how to code on sort of like one of those primitive machines. Mm -hmm. Um, It became this very masculinized profession. Um, And I think it continues to be a profession that we really value. Um, So, you know, I'd like to sort of shift the modest proposal over and think about like, you know, if we um, all encourage our boys to, you know, take care of little kids as girls have always done in, in many cultures, like 
many young children are raised primarily by older sisters. Um, let's get boys involved in that and, you know, teach mm -hmm. them like, let's, let's buy them the, you know, the little play broom and dustbin um, that they can sort of help to clean up the kitchen. Um, I think that men today are generally doing more than their fathers did. Mm -hmm. um, and I think maybe we can kind of continue that so that our sons, I have an 11 year old son also, um, you know, hopefully maybe they'll be, you know, even stepping up more. And I think as the economy changes, and, you know, we become like less of an industrial manufacturing economy and more of like a service and knowledge economy. Um, there isn't necessarily that sort of like built in advantage for men to be the ones who are the highest earners. Yep. So, you know, as earnings kind of realign, I think so too will domestic roles. Oh, I can't wait for that. Um, I think as soon as we, the, the sooner we can level the playing field um, whether it's at home or in the workplace. I, but what I see here is a symbiotic relationship, right? It's a two-way street. You know, as we achieve, we can achieve equality in the workplace without achieving it at home. So we sort of need to continue having this conversation um, at home and we need to have this conversation in the workplace, which is, you know, the premise of what we're trying to do, more honestly, which is how do we elevate care in mm -hmm. the workplace and make, yeah. you know, sort of, support or help leaders and everyone lean into care because yep. we can all just get with the program um, and, you know, understand that everyone, care is not just a woman's issue. It's really for all of us. Um, then we would have at least moved the needle in the workplace. That's exactly, I, I know we're all up at time, but I wanted to give you the opportunity to just share a little bit more about what you do I know you also work with Ivratsky um, on the Fair Play end as well, and you've done a lot of work um, with the Center of um, Changing Family at USC. And tell us more about about that. You know the work that the Center of Changing Family does, and I believe it's one of the very first in the United States in an academic setting. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Definitely. Yeah. So we were really fortunate to be selected by USC for a major seed funding award a few years ago. Um, they had a sort of initiative that faculty could start their own institutes or centers. And out of a number of different faculty that applied, they really said like this, this idea of a center that's focused on families is one that we want to fund. Um, of course, like a month after I got the email that we had been selected for funding, the pandemic started. So we had this really ex interesting experience of trying to get a new center off the ground while also being totally locked down. And so in some ways, you know, the original plan for the center was we'll do lots of events and we'll have lots of talks and we'll build a lot of community. And then, of course, everything turned into Zoom. And um, mm -hmm. in some ways, it was also good timing because, you know, work and family issues and um, couple issues and parenting issues were so front and center for so many people during the pandemic when schools closed down. And, you know, families were just kind of left without a safety net. And, and so, you know, there was, I think, a surge in interest in, you know, how do we fix this? Yeah. I think it's been a little disappointing how we've fixed it as a society so far, right? Like, I think it's very striking that physical infrastructure, like, stayed in the Build Back Better plan and childcare infrastructure and family infrastructure did not. Um, the U.S. is still one of the only countries in the world that doesn't have, you know, federal paid family leave, which I think is a cornerstone of so much of what we're talking about with, you know, investing in care and valuing care. Uh, so, you know, part of the center's role, I think, is to 
you know, be an academic voice in these conversations and, to, you know, to sort of connect with people like you and people like Eve Rodsky, who have been so at the forefront of, you know, sounding the alarm that we need to be a society that values care and that, you know, we're never going to achieve gender equity unless we can solve for care. Um, it's been really a pleasure to kind of get involved in those conversations. Oh, I'm so, I mean, we had such a great time at um, the event that was hosted by your Center of Kenyan Family at USC, Fair Play, and Mother Honestly, where we also had the first partner of California, um, Jennifer Newell. Um, I, I don't want to mess up her name. Jennifer Newell Newsome. Yeah, yeah. that yeah. was amazing. We had that such was, a That was a great, great yeah. event. That um, was really special. Absolutely. I was very proud of the work that we did there. And, and then, of course, your role with the Fair Play documentary and just, again, continuing to um, raise the conversation around care in America and the importance of care, not just in the workplace, but also at home. Mm. Let, you know, let's have dads step up. Um, let's have moms, you know, also share their story. I think that's another part of it, too, yeah. that I, you know, I kind of learned from our conversations um, in LA, which is, you know, we need to keep sharing the stories. Um, mm. And, and you know, and, and that's how, maybe that's other avenues, how we can get dads and um, in workplaces and people like Jennifer and, and the governor of California, I get them plugged in, into mm. what we are doing. Um, yeah. Thank you so, so much, Dr. Zatsby, for coming. We really appreciate you. We enjoyed this conversation. I wish we had more time to sort of dive more into all of this neuro sciences around um around caregiving yeah. but thank you so much enjoy thank your holidays thank enjoy. you it was such a pleasure i'm so glad we had the chance to chat thank you for inviting me thank you so much as a working mother of four juggling my own business with the needs of my family has often led to deprioritizing myself and my own health I need time back, but it's a struggle to decide what to outsource without replacing it with guilt. That's why I am so glad to have found Splendid Spoon. Splendid Spoon brings me nourishing, delicious, healthy, veggie-filled meals that are ready when I am. They are always gluten-free, dairy-free, and completely powered by plants with over 65 options and flexible plants you can change, pause, skip, or cancel at any time. Splendid Spoon is a great partner to me, helping take the load off of food prep and allowing me to enjoy the simple moments that can mean so much. Splendid Spoon has my back when time is just not on my side. Try Splendid Spoon today by visiting SplendidSpoon.com and enter promo code HONESTLY, H-O-N-E-S-T-L-Y, to receive $50 off your first box.